Welcome to Bored and Nerdy. I'm your host, Christopher Munoz. I'm here with my brother, Corey. And today we will be talking about The Martian, a book written by Andy Weir and a movie directed by Ridley Scott. This episode is going to mostly focus on the movie on account of uh, Chris hasn't read the book yet. I think he would like it. But I am going to contribute some book stuff, so you guys can Oh, excellent. That. <laughs> All right. Well, definitely a spoiler warning. Uh, it's just a movie. There's not much to talk about outside the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, I do recommend it. I love uh, all those kind of crazy space movies, Red Planet, Mission to Mars, uh, Europa Report, Last Days on Mars, uh, Apollo 13, Apollo 18. If you like space adventure movies that have uh, a thread of reality to them, uh, this is definitely up your alley. Uh, I recommend checking it out, but we're going to spoil everything. I think it's interesting that you immediately name-dropped Mission to Mars and things like that when those movies are referenced in articles uh, about The Martian where it declares that Ridley Scott cured the Mars curse in Hollywood where people just kind of avoided it. John Carter was supposed to be named John Carter of Mars, but they removed it because any movie about Mars was kind of a Hollywood flop. And Ridley Scott came in and bolstered the planet into being worth making movies about again. Interesting. Uh, no, I wasn't aware of that at all. I, I definitely, some of those movies I listed off were definitely flops. Mission to Mars is not a good movie. But I enjoy it on that level of it's a bad movie. It's always interesting with these uh, Hollywood sci-fi romps to see what kind of reality they try to hang on to and what kind of reality that they let go. And that's a great place to jump into talking about this movie here because the whole premise for this movie is that the astronauts need to bail. They, They need to bail on their Mars base because the winds are getting extremely high and it might knock their rocket ship over. One of the astronauts gets knocked away by debris in the storm. The winds on Mars would never get that high. Uh, the, the atmosphere is not thick enough on Mars to produce those kinds of like hurricane force winds. The challenge on Mars, though, there is a challenge on Mars, and it's that uh, the whole planet's covered in dust. So you get these big dust storms that are electrically charged on Mars, where you don't really end up with that here on Earth because our atmosphere is thicker and there's water. And so it's interesting to me with how committed this movie is to scientific accuracy, that the whole premise for the movie, they would choose something that can't happen. I've heard Andy Weir interviewed about it before. He's the uh, author of this. He, He said that he needed some way to get the story going. Uh, he got hit by like the main satellite dish from their hab. It's like the number one thing that can complicate his life being stranded that hits him. It's not just debris. It's the game changing. Out of all the things to hit him, it has to be the communication antenna, which I thought that was pretty brilliant, too, to set up the uh, stranded man scenario. And an interesting thing about how the books start is in the book, you don't even get that sequence because the book is just his written logs. And so it literally starts with him saying, well, fuck, because he was stranded 
and left behind, injured, abandoned. And there, there is an education version of this book, and it does edit it. It becomes well shit. And <laughs> oh yeah, that's much better. That's one of the only changes in the educational version. Interesting that from a novel writing point, that stuff's fine to be flashback and referenced, but from a movie standpoint, what other thing is going to be dramatic enough to start a movie like that? It was a very good way to to start a movie and to hook the viewer. Story-wise and uh, cinematically, it definitely works, but uh, yeah, atmosphere's just not very thick on Mars. You know, what you going to do? They even reference the atmosphere not being that thick later in the movie. I thought the chemistry for the crew worked really well, which is surprising considering that most of the filming was done just with Matt Damon. And at the very end, they brought in uh, the other actors to shoot those sequences. So everything you see at the beginning of the movie was actually at the end of filming. That would be really awkward in Matt Damon's shoes. You got to give actors kudos there. For sure, no. And he's commented in uh, documentaries I've seen and interviews about how it was super awkward to be the only guy working on this movie and then to have the rest of the cast come in for like the last week or two. And actually, that was one of the main uh, objectives when they were going out casting for this was to find somebody who would be bearable to be on screen for for all that time. Because you're only going to have one actor for most of this story. And that was actually one of the objectives in the book as well. When they were talking about how they hired everybody for the crew or selected everybody for the crew, not only did they need to be trained and specialized in two areas, in the case of Mark Watney, botany and engineering, they also had to have the right social connection because they were going to be on this mission together, you know, isolated on another planet and in a spaceship for a long time and when they were talking in the novel to a psychologist about the whole thing they were asking like how is mark watney dealing with this as you know the kind of person he is how how is he going to handle this and they specifically say well when they hired watney they were looking for someone that would be bearable that would kind of be the social glue that could hold everybody together and keep things light and enjoyable and you know the kind of guy that could make a you laugh on a hard day that's not a direct quote from the book but that's basically what they were saying about him and so the fact that then the casting directors had to go and find an actor that wouldn't frustrate the audience and <laughs> assuming the crew as well to be the only actor on set for however long this movie took that uh, it's just amusing that the actor and the character had to go through the same qualification so you might be able to correct me on this if this is wrong at all since you have read the book but I heard that uh, one of the other challenges that they had converting this to, to a film is that in the book, a lot of it is Mark's inner thoughts. Like, it's whatever he decided to type down. So to get that in the movie, they adjusted it to he's making video log entries. Were there any video log entries at all in the book, or was it all written word? To my knowledge, it was all written word. It's been a few years since I read it, so somebody might be able to nitpick me on that. But I... I'm very confident that it was all written down and that is one of the major differences and because it is all of his just inner thoughts 
one of the big problematic things was that Andy Weir wasn't really that descriptive of a writer. He was very technical. He had very good characterization, especially for Watney. The other characters very much so were uh, neglected in that regard. But you didn't really picture anything. And so when he sent it to editing, his team basically told him, you need to insert a description here. You need to add a description here. Add add something that we can look at here. And then that was the big contribution that Ridley Scott was able to add to it because in all of his, you know, movies, he's he's a visual guy. He can take something and add that iconic imagery to it. And so he was able to take a very lighthearted story in terms of how Mark Watney presents it and make it the depressing, tragic drama that it very easily could be if we were to put ourselves in those shoes. And so it's just interesting to see how it all came together on the other side. So on that note, how, how do you feel about The Martian winning Best Comedy that year? I think that the book is hilarious compared to the movie. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, whatever year this uh, movie came out, I can't remember. Yeah, 2015. So in uh, what tw- in 2015, uh, The Martian wins Best Comedy, which a lot of people took issue with because the movie's not really a comedy, but it is. It makes you laugh. And uh, I really have to credit Matt Damon there. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, Ridley Scott's bringing the uh, realism. Uh, Andy Weir's bringing the skeleton. And Matt Damon's bringing the laughs. Uh, Andy Weir brought the laughs in the writing as well. So definitely kudos to Matt Damon for charisma and being able to bring those lines to life rather than being just completely awkward. But the book itself goes from being... Very lighthearted, just hilarious wit to, oh no, how in the world could he ever survive this new development? And so then the movie has him in this, oh no, how could he ever survive this horrible world? With, well, I'm just going to be a little nonchalant. Ha ha ha. I personally wouldn't give it a, a comedy award, but. I have to agree, it makes me laugh. Two of my favorite lines from the whole thing in terms of, like, his wit is when they talk about back on Earth, I wonder what's going on in his mind right now, you know, that kind of thing. Some of his entry logs are literally just one line of, how come Aquaman can talk to whales if they're mammals. Nice. (laughs) And then another one is him saying, in high school, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. You might not have guessed that, this botanist mechanical engineer being a bit of a nerd in high school, but indeed I was. In the game, I played a cleric, and one of the magic spells I could cast was Create Water. I always thought that was a really stupid spell, and I never used it. Boy, what I wouldn't give to be able to do that in real life right now. And so as someone that, you know, likes superhero movies, likes Dungeons and Dragons, that spoke to me. It's like, oh, 
someone like me stuck on Mars. <laughs> Nerds of the world unite. <laughs> but just to be clear, a much, much smarter version of me was stuck on Mars. <laughs> One thing that kind of launches the story in motion is that Mark Watney gets knocked out by debris uh, and he spends the night on Mars buried in dirt. He he goes in and has to immediately give himself surgery to like remove shrapnel from his abdomen. That whole uh, sequence seems kind of hard to believe that uh, he his spacesuit could be totally punctured. I mean, we've seen astronauts on Apollo missions or on the International Space Station, and they all look like the Michelin Man or the Marshmallow Man. They're all blown up. Well, the thing that's interesting about the spacesuits in the Martian. It is a real concept of a thing is basically in a spacesuit, all you're trying to do is provide the difference in pressure, because if, if your body's not under pressure, all of your blood and all your all your different gases and liquids are going to become gases and they're going to try to escape out of your body. So you need to be constantly uh, at, at an Earth pressure. So in spacecraft, they they just pump gas in there they pump the air in there uh to to equalize that pressure and in a spacesuit they do the same thing they blow you up it's like being inside an air tube or inside a tire well on the martian or in the martian we get to see a different kind of spacesuit where they're directly applying pressure to the skin so it would be like a super skin tight spacesuit where it's actually the rigidity of the material itself that's applying the pressure to your to your body Super interesting concept. The idea is that it would allow you to be close to as flexible as you are on the Earth in, in that kind of spacesuit. Uh, really fascinating to see the kind of technologies like that that they pushed in this movie. In the novel, his suit was more cumbersome. He did... Was it inflated? I don't recall to the degree, but the distinction between their EVA suit which is what they walk around on Mars in, and then the suit that they wear up into space. Oh, sure. No, and that, that makes sense, because you'd probably, you'd want a suit with better, uh, like, thermal control. Um, because on Mars, you'd probably only be going outside during the day, where on space, you might drift into a shadow. Very and... interesting. Just a note on the physicality of it. In the movie, he has an incredibly easy time moving around. You do still hear the astronauts, you know, breathing heavy and moving awkwardly slow at times. But in the book, he does complain about it. And he complains about how long it takes to go through the airlock and how long it takes to take his suit off and put it back on. Whereas in the movie, he's very much so able to just go in and out of the airlock almost at will. And he also has a like crane and winch on his rover, so he doesn't even have to pick up heavy things. Whereas in the book, he did not have that stuff. So he had to build giant ramps out of rocks and slide and shove things up them. And so movie Watney got a uh, easy ride so they probably yeah they trimmed some of that stuff down for uh for time so speaking of trimming things down 
uh, one of the other linchpins in this story is the potato farming. So I'd like to chat about potato farming for a minute. What's interesting is shortly after the Martian, the story was written, uh, we discovered that the Martian soil actually contains perchlorides, which is actually a toxic compound. So in the events that we see in the Martian, what would have happened is after a while, Mark Watney's chances of getting cancer would have increased. It could cause his thyroid to fail, which would cause him to have trouble with digestion and heart rate and basically just living. During the movie making process, they talked about this because it has been discovered and they decided not to include anything for time to keep the story simpler. But really, all Mark Watney would have to do differently is he would need to wash the dirt before putting it in the people space. So he would have had to bring the dirt into some kind of sealed environment to wash the dirt with water and then take the cleaned dirt into the hab. That's what he would have had to do differently uh, to avoid the perchlorites because you can just wash them away, apparently. Which, if that information had been involved in Andy Weir's research as he was writing it, that definitely is the kind of tedious science that he would have included. He was a very thorough person in terms of explaining the scientific process and the math of everything he did on the level that someone like me, who is not a math and science person, was able to follow and enjoy the story because I felt informed versus overwhelmed and talked down to. Mark Watney's inner thoughts was able to make uh, math fun. And so I feel like washing the dirt is something that Book Watney would have definitely been okay with doing. I mean, it's really a credit to them that it's as entertaining as it is, because not really much happens really in the general. I mean, guy gets stranded, guy gets rescued. It could be simplified to that. They do a really good job of uh, stretching out the pacing and giving you interesting things to. Uh, to fret about that can be attributed to ridley scott's interest in making movies that are all about that base human need to survive hour by hour that is the whole premise of the book though you know andy weir wanted to write about a smart nerdy guy being able to solve his way through unprecedented drama in the movie he has far less complications to deal with they definitely required the drama that they did have i loved the whole sequence where he's trying to reverse engineer the water back out of the fuel tanks on the the on the uh descent vehicle from their landing that whole sequence is brilliant i love the jokes when he blows himself up it was great sciencing the shit out of everything which summarized chapters and chapters of science in the whole book one thing that was really fun novel wise was he ended up using the other astronauts suits to store water like he made water jugs out of them hey you got what you got the potato farms covered the entirety of the hab it was on other bunks i really liked uh, jeff daniel's character the uh the mission control director in the movie Teddy Sanders. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, they could have come up with a better name, but, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed the character. I love that uh, he, he he was a human, but you could tell he was a hard-ass businessman 
uh, I really I really enjoy the character. Every second he's on film is is gold. The moment I realized that he was from Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> yeah, I struggled. But <laughs> I agree. He he's a very effective character. Really, I think the whole support staff did a wonderful job. Uh, Teddy Sanders as the director who has to call the unpopular. Th- um, the unpopular plan, I guess. Um, Mitch Henderson, the flight director, who's all about my team deserves to be the ones making the Oh, decision. yeah. Oh, yeah. Boromir. The, yeah, uh, the fact that they got Boromir in there <laughs> on the, uh, the Council of Elrond and being called out on, well, what is Elrond? And Teddy Sanders, I want to be Glorfindel. And Annie <laughs> saying, what is this? And basically getting upset at this room full of NASA guys that understand Lord of the Rings humor. I love it. So there was a lot of debate between Sean Bean and the rest of the cast and the director about whether or not to even acknowledge this Council of Elrond joke, because I guess that's in the book. And, and they ended up going like, yes, go for it. We just need it in there. Do it. I'm so glad they did, because it actually, it doesn't really take me out of the movie more than I enjoy it. Seeing Dumb and Dumber coming out of a director of NASA took me out far more than hearing Boromir reference. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, I was in that movie. (laughs) So what happened to uh, Mark's music? Like, is that in the book at all? Like, where the heck did his music go? He's complaining the whole film about... uh, the the crappy disco music he has from his commander did did he like leave his music on the ascent vehicle maybe maybe what we saw was actually their second trip to the lander or to the ascent vehicle he'd already been like setting it up and was like oh yeah i need to bring you know my tunes put it in there and we saw them on their second trip like no my music so in the book he goes through everyone's things and listens and watches everything that they have he watches a whole bunch of old tv shows which you only really see happy days for one scene and he listens to a lot of beth johansson's collection because she's got the beatles and i think that it's more so about that when he discovered that that's all she brought, he got obsessed with it on a, what are you doing, Commander? And he did end up deciding that uh, Staying Alive was his theme song. Okay, cool, nice. And so I think that that might be the reference point of needing to keep it coming up. So speaking of uh, Staying Alive, the the one that jumps out in my mind is uh, the Hot Stuff song that he's in the uh, he's in the rover. And they're singing that's a disco song about hot stuff while he's sitting next to uh, a uh, a decaying thermoisotope generator. That was an interesting shout out to me. It was so Kerbal. I'm an avid Kerbal Space Program player. And uh, the funny thing is, is in the early days of space exploration, like in the 50s, when they were plotting this stuff out, there were actually plans to build like moon habs and spacecraft with the, the thermoisotope generator in the living space because it does produce heat as a byproduct. And they use that heat to turn a turbine in it or to to uh, produce electricity. But they were like, oh, yeah, well, we can also use it to keep the crew nice and warm. 
well, <laughs> you're also killing them with radiation. So uh, it, was, it was really, really funny to me, just that that little bit of a shout out. Like, like, hey, I could choose to think about that this is killing me, or I could think about that it's keeping me alive for like a few more minutes. When I was watching that part of the movie this morning, I had to rewatch it because, well, I didn't have to work today. And so I had my daughter on my lap, and she's recently decided that she really likes dancing to music. And so as soon as that song started and Watney starts bobbing his shoulders, dancing around, she started dancing with him. <laughs> nice. And so that was super cute. And uh, I agree. that That's a wonderful scene. Great use of music, Matt Damon's charisma and the science. My favorite part of that isotope is he ends up using it for another thing later in the book when he's thoroughly hurt his body and he makes a hot tub basically out of hab canvas <laughs> and he fills it with his excess water and he heats it up with the isotope nice uh yeah it, they could have definitely made a longer movie i i think it works though I, I they cut the stuff they did for a reason i think it could have made a great tv show okay i could see that each episode has his new mechanical oh no that he has to solve. Hey, speaking of mechanical oh no's he needs to solve, so probably one of the tensest parts in the movie is about in the halfway point, you start to feel good. You're like, you know, he's got his stuff together. This guy's smart. He's going to make it. Earth's on his side. Like, I know exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly the scene you're talking about. And yeah. an important part to remember about that is not only are you feeling good, but it cuts to him being productive right after Tan Teddy Sanders says, assuming nothing goes wrong. <laughs> right, yeah, and he didn't knock on any wood. But yeah, Mark's going in through the through the airlock and it just explodes. Because if you think about it, everything's built for a certain number of uses. It's built for a certain number of days. That's why they schedule everything on like space station. So this guy just using this all willy-nilly and going in and out and using it a billion times a day and it being used outside its operational parameters has like weakened his airlock and it goes explodey and it sucks because he loses all of his crops and basically everything inside the hab got vacuumed out if you think about it he lost a bunch of oxygen and definitely a bunch of hydrogen in the process uh you really feel for him there in the movie it's definitely the lowest spot in the whole movie but one thing that I thought was particularly interesting, after the airlock explodes, he gets up and he has a, a crack in his uh, visor. And he reaches down on his utility belt, all a Batman style, and pulls off like a length of duct tape or gray tape to, uh, to seal up his mask. And I really liked that touch. Uh, but the, uh, <laughs> the space nerd in me couldn't help but think about astronauts on the moon trying to do this very same thing and failing horribly because uh on one of the apollo missions one of the fenders on the lunar rover came to pieces and they're like oh oh well we'll, well, we'll get the fender and we'll just we'll gray tape it back together right well there's a lot of dust on the moon and so the dust in kept settling onto the gray tape so they couldn't actually add no adhesion so I couldn't help but think as soon as he's pulling the gray tape off of his dispenser to put it on his mask that 
hey, you're on the dusty planet of Mars. You're telling me that that tube just wouldn't be full of dust from bouncing all over the surface, and that tape's not going to stick, dude. <laughs> you're you're going to die before you get back to the hab. I'm sorry. So an important distinction there is that the airlock itself was still intact to a degree. It was punctured, oh, okay. and that's why it blew up. But there was still some atmosphere in there. It was still kind of sealed. And so, and that's why he didn't just instantly blow up. And so he puts the duct tape on, and you even see him leave through the door. It's still inflated and everything. And there's a quote from the book that's really solid, which is, Yes, of course duct tape works in a near vacuum. Duct tape works anywhere. Duct tape is magic and should be worshipped. <laughs> well, and I don't I don't disagree with that, but if you were uh if I left you hanging with what the Apollo astronauts did, they their solution ended up being when they were back inside the pressurized lunar module, they used duct tape, they used gray tape, and they used uh the backs of flight manuals and stuff to construct a new fender, all a cardboard guns style. And then they went out there on an EVA and installed it on their rover so they could finish their mission. That's great. In the book, he used a um, a resin adhesive. I think it was resin. So you kind of alluded to it uh, earlier, the launching under a tarp, uh, where there's a sequence. I don't know if it's in the book, but in the movie, there's the sequence where... Uh, they're on their way back to rescue him, rescue him, and he needs to shed a bunch of weight out of the ascent vehicle so that he can rendezvous. Uh, and and it's it's probably one of the most hair raising parts in the uh, in the third act. Uh, even dumping off like the windows and the nose cone and the chairs and everything. And uh, so he's launching into space with just this uh, literal tarp like strapped over the nose of this rocket. And at one point, it like blows loose and ends up. Uh, costing him a lot of speed that whole part is that in the book at all Corey? he still leaves mars in the same way has to modify an mav has to leave but the whole escaping from mars goes much smoother his drama is beforehand interesting so one thing that i do want to chat about a little bit is the rich pernell maneuver uh insanely crazy so in the movie they go oh, well, they don't have enough speed to actually to get into orbit of Mars. And, and for the average viewer, you're like, what? Like, they didn't do this math ahead of time? But no, that was the plan. That is the math. That's what was so risky about it. That's why uh, uh, Teddy Sanders wasn't going to say, yeah, yeah, do this. Because, again, I, I've played a lot of Kerbal Space Program. And just the idea of trying to rendezvous with an object while you're not actually in orbit of that object, or, or of, of the same object, I mean, is mind-boggling. Because, okay, so let's pretend that we have two objects in orbit of a planet. Even just in that scenario, there's a lot to consider to put two objects in the same place at the same time going the same speed. Well, in the Martian, what's happening is we have a spacecraft that's orbiting the sun that's going to be swinging past Mars at the same time as he is shooting up into the sky and going to fall back down. And their plan is to catch him before he starts falling back down. <laughs> and it's freaking insane. And, and it works because it's a Hollywood movie. And frankly, I'm glad it works. I wouldn't have had it any other way in the movie. But uh, 
not a good plan, Chief. It's a uh, gambling, you know. It's super gambling, and and big, big win. <laughs> and as we see in the in the movie, they have to like improvise by like blowing all the air out of the nose of the ship and all this crazy stuff to like get the orbits closer to right or to get the trajectory closer to right to scoop him up. And even then, uh, the captain has to go like out on a tether and like, or the commander goes out on a tether and can barely catch him. That whole sequence is awesome, but just the uh, the odds at play are bogglingly, yeah, gambling. <laughs> it's a huge gamble. That scene actually is my biggest pet peeve with the movie. Yeah, yeah. I just because love of the it. odds. No, I love it all the way up through blowing the nose off the ship you know, puncturing it for the reverse of the air escaping and, you know, just the science there is really cool in my mind, how they're able to actually line up with him. But when you look at the crew, everyone has very specific jobs that they are trained to do. As said, Mark Watney is a botanist and engineer. The commander is also a geologist. And then Chris Beck is the doctor, biologist, and EVA specialist. Going out into space in these suits is what this guy is on the mission to do. That is his entire, like, <laughs> mastery. And, and the commander's the... like, stand down! <laughs> yeah, and they literally did it for the sake of drama, which I get from a, a movie standpoint, it is much more dramatic. But in the the book, Beck's able to get onto the MAV cap and climb inside with Watney and be like, hey, buddy. And then they strap to each other, and then they leave. A bit more realistic, for sure. And in this one, you know, you straight up have Iron Man. And yeah, yes, flying Iron Man. <laughs> yes, in the book, Watney says, hey, I could Iron Man, because he is that ridiculous guy with an imagination, but he recognizes that it's too stupid to do, and he doesn't do it. So, Corey, what would you say your favorite part of The Martian is? was? My favorite part of The Martian as a... Film, the movie film. would probably be the I blew myself up scene. Ooh, okay, yeah, that that is good. That is good. To go with your response, I'd have to say that uh, one of my favorite parts in The Martian is when he's making his own fertilizer and he has the uh, the poop bucket. And I have to say that I experienced smell-o-vision today because somebody in the room passed gas during that scene. And it was very weird, like, fourth wall break. Gross. So let's just hope Smell-O-Vision is never invented. So, uh, hey, least favorite. What was your least favorite part? I think you already said it. I already said it. It's Commander taking Beck's uh, rescue moment. And, and I suppose I already said mine, too. And it's that they they started the whole movie off on a on a thing that can't happen. The wind can't go that strong. But that's what they chose to do. I enjoy it. I think it's a great movie. I think it's an even better book. Everybody should read it. Everybody should watch it. If you have even the slightest bit of interest in science or space. I definitely recommend it as well. It's one of my one of my top space movies. I watch it frequently. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you folks joined us all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Next episode, we'll be discussing the Netflix Transformers Season 2, Transformers Earthrise. You can follow Bored and Nerdy on Instagram and YouTube. You can also find us on 
Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please do like and subscribe, share the content if you folks like what you're hearing. We'd be super interested in any feedback. You can email us at boardnnerdy, all one word, at gmail.com. We would love to hear what you liked, what you didn't like, what you'd love to see us cover, uh, any feedback at all. We hope you're a little less bored and a little more nerdy.